Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. This episode is a little different. This is part one of a two-part series in which I'm the one in the hot seat. It's a repost of my recent appearance on the Kavira Coalition's excellent podcast called Down to Earth, the Planet to Plate podcast. They were nice enough to invite me on to talk about some of my conservation work at Palmer Land Trust, particularly around our focus of conserving irrigated farmland in southeastern Colorado. It's fascinating work that hits on many of the issues we've previously discussed here on Mountain and Prairie. Water rights, pressures facing agricultural communities, holistic approaches to resource management, balancing the needs of agriculture with that of municipalities, and much more. It's what I spend the vast majority of my time doing, and I hope you'll find it interesting and informative. Regardless of whether or not you listen to my episode, I highly encourage you to check out Down to Earth. The host, Mary Charlotte, is a journalistic pro who likes to dive deep into the nuances of agriculture. She's also interviewed some of the most impressive people working in ag today, and I don't include myself in that. If you've enjoyed my past episode with folks like Jim Howell, Pat O'Toole, Christine Sue, and of course, Kavira Executive Director Sarah Wenzel Fisher, then I can guarantee you'll love the Down to Earth podcast. There's a link to Down to Earth in the episode notes, so be sure to check it out and give them a great review on iTunes if you're so inclined. Thanks again to Down to Earth for being so interested in my work, and thanks to all of you for listening. Feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Hope you enjoy. From the Radio Cafe and the Kivira Coalition, this is Down to Earth, the Planet to Plate podcast. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte Dumandi. I'm very happy to welcome Ed Robertson. He's conservation director at the Palmer Land Trust in Colorado, and he's producer and host of the Mountain and Prairie podcast. Welcome, Ed. Thanks so much for having me. So you've got this terrific podcast in which you interview a wide range of people talking about the American West, land, water, development, wildlife, all sorts of interesting things. And I want to talk to you about that in a little bit. But first, I wanted to ask you about your work as conservation director for the Palmer Land Trust, how you came into that work in Colorado, sort of central and southeastern Colorado. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a long, meandering, I think, interesting story, but I'll I'll uh, I'll keep it pretty brief. I, I spent the, almost all of my career in the business world. I'm 41 now, and uh, I've only been in full time conservation now for for just about a year. But I've been involved in land conservation one way or another for about the last 10 years. I started out in the finance world, working with Merrill Lynch and UBS and those those kind of companies, and then I was in commercial real estate. And in 2005, I moved out West to start a job as a ranch broker, which being from Eastern North Carolina, I didn't even know there was such a thing. And, and when I found out there was, I, I jumped all over it and got a job selling ranches all over the West, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho. It was a lot of fun. And it was during the real estate boom. So I got a lot of great real estate experience. And, you know, as, as you know, during that real estate boom period, it was just a, a period of out of control 
money and greed and, and a lot of crazy things happening. And, and I kind of got some of that in my system and had this idea that I wanted to be a real estate developer, which is kind of funny seeing what I do now. And I actually went back to business school to get my MBA with the sole intent of being a, a real estate developer. And during that time in business school, kind of two main things happened. I got a job with a big real estate development company during the summer break between the two years. And during that summer, I actually had a, a really terrible, scary health scare. Um, I was told I had cancer and had to have emergency surgery and all this kind of thing. And uh, I'm fine now. But that combined with the economic crisis where I saw the entire economy fall apart and a lot of these so-called real estate developers who had these big plans kind of fell apart and walked away from half-built developments in these beautiful mountain valleys and kind of scarred the landscape of the West. And I, I just between the health scare and seeing that and knowing my role in brokering some of those transactions, I just started feeling really awful about it and realized that it just wasn't, that wasn't what I wanted to be doing in my life. Um, I, you know, I love the West and I love the open landscapes and it's most of the important, the most important experiences of my life have come on those big open landscapes. And so anyway, I just kind of reevaluated and decided I did, instead of being a developer, I wanted to get back in the real estate business, but with a conservation focus. And so that's what I did soon after business school. And I continued in the ranch brokerage world, but focused on working with conservation buyers and sellers and with ranchers and, and uh, you know, multi-generational ranchers who were do- working in regenerative agriculture. And it was a really cool deal because I was able to stay in the real estate world, but but focused on the side of it that I could feel good about and that I felt like was making a difference. And while I was doing that, I started doing more and more consulting for conservation groups and eventually was asked to be on the board here at Palmer. And after about three months, I saw some of the cool work they were doing. And I thought, man, you know, I want to be doing this full time. You know, real estate's great, but this is this is more important. And um, had the opportunity to talk with the executive director and we figured out a way to make a space for me. So I, I'm here. I, I joined last July. So coming up on a year and working mainly in the agricultural side of things for Palmer Land Trust. But I love it. It's I don't know how I can ever go back to doing things just for the paycheck after doing something that is this fulfilling to me personally. Right. There's a quote from one of your heroes, Teddy Roosevelt, that what is it? The greatest blessing is to do work hard at something you love. Yeah. Work hard at work at work hard at work worth doing. Yeah. And I, I read that quote a long time ago and I, I was kind of trying to convince myself that what I was doing was worth doing. And it is in a lot of ways, it's a cool job. And I was with a great company with great people, the best in the business conservation minded, but it wasn't a hundred percent worth doing to me. And now I am doing that. And between, you know, my work here at Palmer and then the unexpected podcast side of things, I, I, I feel like my life is very full uh, with, with work worth doing. One of the problems you're looking at in Colorado is what happens when farmers and ranchers sell their water rights. The catchphrase for that is buy and dry. What does that mean? What does that look like in Colorado? Yeah. So in Colorado, you know, it's uh, a Western state. It's arid. Water is the, the, the biggest factor that kind of controls everything. And as the population grows, there's a need for, for more and more water. And so I think right now, I think Colorado's population is something like 5.6 million. And it's expected in the next 30 years to grow by an additional 3 million people. And so the, the big question is, where does that water come from? And so these cities 
are expanding and expanding, and as they expand, they need water. And about 80% of the water that's in use in Colorado is in agriculture. And so you've got this set amount of water that there is. 80% of it's in ag, 20% is for other uses. And so in order for these cities to grow, to get water to go to homes or you know anything that's involved in a you know, municipal growth, you got to take it away from the ag world. And so over the last you know 50 years, really, 40, 40 uh, years, municipalities have been going out and buying water from farmers uh, or ranchers or people that irrigate and then converting that water into municipal use so that the cities can grow. And I don't fault them for that. You know, there there is a need for economic growth. There's a lot of great things going out here in Colorado. But the, the problem is as these farms and ranches get dried up, there are implications that go far beyond just, oh, it was an irrigated field and now it's not. Um, there are ecological problems, there are economic problems, kind of the, the heritage of a lot of these uh, communities is built around the ability to irrigate for agriculture. And the, the problems expand very, very quickly. And I, I'm happy to go into details of some different case studies, but that's that's kind of the overview. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that. I mean, on the surface of it, the first problem is when a farmer or rancher would sell his or her water rights, that means that they can't irrigate anymore, the land becomes dry, and their ability to do their job goes away. That's one part of it. Talk about some of the, you know, how does it go out beyond there, like the ecological implications? Yeah, well, there's a county that I do some work in in southeastern Colorado called Crowley County, and it's a real case study in kind of the worst case scenario of what can happen with buy and dry. And so in the, just to give you some background on that place, in the 70s and 80s, different front range municipalities came in and offered to buy water from the farmers. And they ended up buying a, over 90%, I believe, of the water in this in this agricultural community. And just over the course of two really two, two and a half decades, they took all, almost all the water out of this community. And what used to be these irrigated farm, farms became just basically dry. And so there, there are a lot of problems with that. The first one from an ecological standpoint is, you know, I'm sure the, the listeners of this podcast fully understand the, the complexity of grasslands in the West and how fragile they are and that they just don't grow back like in North Carolina, you know, grow back in a year or two. And so when they dried up these fields, they didn't revegetate them as they should have. And so all of a sudden it becomes the dust bowl out there. Or not all of a sudden, but over the course of a few decades, it becomes a dust bowl. And I've seen pictures um, of that area in the 90s and and even in the, the recent years where there are dust clouds that if you put the picture in black and white, you'd think it was 1930s wow. um, with the, the actual dust bowl. And invasive weeds come in. It's, it's just a, a, real, a real mess from an ecological standpoint. And then from an economic standpoint, Crowley County was this vibrant farming community that had been that way for, for generations. They take the, the irrigated farms out of there, and all of a sudden there's no, there's no more farming. And so the whole economy falls apart. And so what used to be this this great place is now one of the poorest counties in the United States. And the only real industry there is a for-profit prison. Mm. 
Right. And so it's it's just like night and day when you compare what that place was like, say, in the 1950s or 60s to what it is today. And it was actually a trip down there with our my colleague, Matt Heimrich, when I was on the board here at Palmer, and he showed me around there in the summer. And it's it is it's like a hellscape in some ways on a hot day with the dust devils blowing around and tumbleweeds and seeing what happened there was all the motivation I needed to make the full, the jump into full-time conservation and try to find solutions. So that kind of thing doesn't happen again. The water that you're talking about, the water whose rights are being sold in the first place, where is that water coming from? Most of it is coming from rivers. Um, so the way it works out here, there, there are a lot of great books on this. You know, the one that I recently read is called Where the Water Goes by David Owen. He's a New Yorker writer. And that's a people that want to dig into water rights. That's a good place to start. But but anyway, they so down there is the Arkansas River. The Arkansas River starts at the base of Mount Elbert, which is the highest peak in Colorado, and goes all the way out to the Kansas border to the lowest point in Colorado. And along the way, there are these uh, irrigation diversions. So There'll, there'll be a little dam and the ditch coming off of that dam, and then that ditch goes out into a field and irrigates the field. And so those kind of diversions all along the Arkansas River and that water just kind of slowly being taken out of the river, used to irrigate the farmland, and then when it, uh, you know, whatever's left over dumps back into the river. But like, for example, on the Colorado River, I know you people have heard that it doesn't empty into the sea anymore. It, it, right. it goes dry, and the reason it goes dry is because of all those diversions. So, I mean, before water rights started getting sold in these areas, and we're talking about, as you say, you know, river water that's already over-allocated, people were doing irrigated agriculture. Was that water system, before those rights were all, you know, many of them were sold off, was it sustainable? In other words, was water being drained off and then recharging or was it already a situation where more water was being used than than was replacing it? What did that look like? Well, you know, I'm not a, a, a full expert on, on the history, but I've actually I've read a few books about it. And I have I've had a I had a great guy on my podcast early on named Spencer Williams, who's a water rights attorney who talked about this a bit. But you know, I think when in the early days of European settlement out here. Um, they started irrigating and they started diverting these, um, you know, these rivers. And a, a lot of the, this happened, uh, kind of the, the, the groundwork for Colorado water law, in my understanding, was laid up in northern Colorado, kind of around Fort Collins. And, and basically, one settlement had started irrigating and, and then another settlement went upstream and decided they were going to start irrigating upstream. And then when they started doing it, it took the water from the settlement that had been there. And so all of a sudden this big fight starts up and that was the the beginning of Colorado water law. And it's my understanding that when they put this whole system in place that, that prioritizes who gets the water during that time when they actually figured out, all right, this is how much water we have. We're going to allocate it. We're going to put it into different water rights shares and we're going to spread it out. It was during that time that there, that time when you look at, at climate uh, models from the old days, that was a historically wet period. So when they figured out we have X amount of water, 
that X was actually a lot more than there had been or that there was going to be. Right. And so that's why it is over allocated. And another guest out on my podcast named Sarah Dant, she's a, a history professor who wrote a great book called The en- Envir- uh, Losing Eden. And there's a lot about the, the the beginnings of water rights in there and a lot about the Mormons uh, in Utah. And they, they kind of figured figured this out in the the deserts of Utah, figured out how to how to irrigate. So it's it's amazingly interesting and amazingly complex. And the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know, which is which is kind of cool because I'm a curious guy. So (laughs) the more I can learn, the better. But it's it's super interesting. Yeah, I have to say, having interviewed a lot of people around a lot of different topics on this beautiful green earth, water is one of the most complicated things to wrap your head around. It's, it's so complicated. I mean, and I, I, that is the majority of what I do now um, is water. And, but it's fascinating. But, it, you know, in that book by David Owen that I mentioned, he, he was talking about the water rights law in the West. And it's in, in a way, it's like the tax code. You know, it was built on this initial framework. And then people just continue to tack, tack on this, tack on that. And now it's just this crazy, complicated um, system that requires – a ton of money and a ton of really smart attorneys to get anything done. And he was saying, you know, if you could just eliminate the whole water rights law and get a bunch of grad students in an, in a conference room for an afternoon, they could come up with a system that would make a lot more sense given what we know about the supply of water. Right. Um, but I don't, I don't see that happening <laughs> anytime soon. <laughs> yeah. Once water rights are sold, it's virtually impossible to get them back. And some communities are going, Oh crap, what have we, you know, what have we done? You're looking at models for keeping agricultural lands working after water rights have been sold. What would that look like? What kind of ideas are you are you guys, you know, developing? Yeah, this and this is one of the main reasons I I came over to Palmer full time because of the the kind of cutting edge nature of this project, but generally the work of land trust, um, these conservation groups, is to go in and put conservation easements on properties, and that's that's what land trusts have been doing for for you know tw- twenty years now, even more than that. And and basically, what, when you put a conservation on easement on a property, it limits development. And in agricultural land, you tie the water to the land so that it can never be sold. And so the idea with that is you're getting ahead of the problem. So you you've got this beautiful ranch that's got irrigated meadows. You tie that water to the land so that no municipality can ever come in and buy it. And that, that's a great tool, and that's worked well. But the, the question we're trying to tackle is what do you do in a post-acquisition landscape? And particularly, particularly there's this uh, community just east of Pueblo, Colorado, and it's three different small communities, about 20,000 acres total, all farming, and it's irrigated by this – ditch this irrigation canal called the Bessemer ditch really good water really highly prioritized water right and in 2009 the city of Pueblo came to the farmers along the Bessemer ditch and said hey we, we want to buy water do any of y'all, y'all want to sell and I don't fault Pueblo at all for doing that in fact it's a very innovative move on their part because given the expansion that water could have easily been bought by uh, by Denver or by Colorado Springs. And Pueblo came together and was like, look, we need to secure the future of our city and we need to make sure we have water for the next hundred years. And so we're going to buy this water. And so they bought it. 
and they bought about a third of the water rights in this community. And then they leased it back to the farmers for 20 years. And so if you're driving around down there right now, it, it's business as usual. It's this great, rich, vibrant farming community. Everybody's irrigating. They grow peppers. They grow melons. They grow corn. Just a really neat place. Um, but the the big question is, in 2029, when those leases expire, what's going to happen with that water? So what we're doing is trying to come up with basically a market-based voluntary framework that will allow water rights to be moved from one parcel of farmland to another. Because as it stands now, most of the pieces of farmland that sold their water are some of the most highly productive farm, uh, farm ground in that area. And that's concerning to think that in 10 years from now or 20 years from now or even 30 years from now, if they were to take that water off of those highly productive pieces of land, what's going to happen? You know, it, it's, it's going to dry it up. They, even if they revegetate and it's beautiful, goes back to beautiful grasslands, there's going to be an economic impact to that community. And so what we're working with tons of different community stakeholders. And, and I want to make it clear, this is a community-driven project. You know, we're just kind of helping to facilitate. But uh, us sitting in Colorado Springs trying to come up with these great ideas without community support means nothing. And so the, the community has kind of come together to come up with this innovative system that's going to allow us to strategically dry up parcels that could help with water quality, may not be the most productive, and then assemble a critical mass of farmland that will never be dried up and will stay in production forever. So this is really an innovative approach. It's not It's not something that has been tried very much yet. Is that correct? Yeah, it's never been tried on the scale that we're, we're trying to get it done on. And, you know, there's just so many different steps to it. There's getting, you know, dealing with the, the, the water rights change case, which is the, when the municipality changes uh, the water from agricultural use to municipal use. And generally when when that happens, you know, when a, when a parcel is dried up, historically it can't be re-irrigated after that because they just want to ensure that all the water is accounted for. And so basically what we're trying to do is say, is is allow in the future, allow for parcels that could have been dried up to be re-irrigated if needed. And it's it's a really innovative project in a lot of ways because, you know, obviously it's going to benefit this community if we can pull, if we can pull it off, um, or I should say when we pull it off. But I think for funders that have expressed interest in this project, they're excited about it because it, it obviously has immediate effects on the ground in this community, but it can be applied to other post-acquisition landscapes as well and other river corridors in Colorado. You know, some of the funders I've been working with have seen other applications for this in the Arkansas River Valley as well as in the Colorado River Basin on the other side of the mountains. And it's it's pretty we, – we've assembled a really, really good team of experts in all different uh, areas of this from the legal side to the academic side to actual on-the-ground farmers to, um, you know – advocates in the in the local government there and and i'm just kind of the overseeing it all and it's uh it's really has the potential to be one of these rare win-win-wins where everybody comes out ahead how does the city that bought the water rights in the first place come out ahead they'll get every single drop that they paid for you know they paid tens of millions of dollars for that water and again i it's very impressive that a city of their size 
was able to make do this massive acquisition and they they kind of I mean they had to do it and when you talk to business leaders there they are extremely proud of this group because or it, proud of the the utility because they were able to pull this off and they know that as water gets scarce out here which is going to happen they're always going to have water in the city where I live Colorado Springs over 70% of the water in this town is pumped in from the other side of the continental divide out of the Colorado River basin and so if they ever shut that off which right. could very well happen. This town's going to be in big trouble. Whereas Pueblo, they they own more water than they can ever use, and so they they're secured. And so that's one of the main points of this this project is we're not trying to say nobody gets. You know, we don't want Pueblo to get their water. We want them to get every single drop they paid for. They you know they deserve it. It's very admirable they were able to do that. But what we're saying is, if land is going to be dried up, and unfortunately it is. Let's just be very, very mindful about what we dry up and what we don't, because there's some real benefits to drying up water along some of these creek corridors that, you know, if you dry up some of that, there's uh, water quality benefits. And there's obviously very real benefits to keeping the most productive farmland in production forever. So, you know, in in what we're proposing and what we have the backing of, of almost everybody down there is a situation where everybody gets what they want. We're just very, very mindful about how we go about it. And it's such an example of an initiative that takes a lot of people thinking broadly, thinking beyond, you know, for example, property rights. It really takes a kind of holistic thinking. And you are making that happen, it sounds like. It's really... It's really cool and it's really exciting. And like I mentioned, you know, we've got this all-star team. And and as we've made progress, you know, we've been working on – or Palmer's been working on this for, for over four years. And as we've made progress and the word has gotten out and people have seen the potential – because it's complicated stuff and it's kind of hard to get your head around. But but people are really getting on board. And like, for example, this, this fall – we're going to be having a convening here in Colorado Springs, and we're bringing in some of the, the leading experts in the United States and even the world on water. And it's, it's being uh, hosted in part by um, the Loeb Fellowship out of Harvard University. And we're gathering some of these people from the investment world, from the foundation world, from the academic world. We're all going to get together in a room for two days and just – really, really throw around a bunch of ideas about, all right, all right, we're making progress here. How can we continue to figure this out? And, you know, I, I neglected to say, and, and there are going to be a lot of uh, local farmers in that room too. And I, I just want to be very clear that this is not some academic exercise, a great, you know, some idea that we think we have in our office. This is a thing that's being driven by people on the ground. And it's, you know, for me, I'm just, I just feel very, uh, lucky to be to be a part of it because it, it's innovative and exciting and I you can feel really really good about it at the end of the day you know it makes me think about what a lot of people say about art and creativity and the same thing is true in the rest of life which is when you have limitations creativity arises and broader thinking arises like we have now all kinds of limitations having to do with water and soil and the strains that are being put on our areas by population and so on. And just when those things start to seem so dire that, oh no, what are we going to do? This kind of thinking comes up. And one of the pieces that, that I was sort of imagining was that, like, think about the local food movement. You've got water, 
going to cities that went to farmers. And so those farmers aren't going to be bringing their food to farmers markets because they're not being able to produce it. And then those cities are poorer, like everybody loses if you if the water isn't going to farmers because so many people now want to eat local food. That's that's a huge aspect that I'm I'm so glad you brought up uh, is the local food movement. You know, here in Colorado Springs, I think there are 500,000 people that live here, and you know, local food is is all the rage as it should be, and I'm so glad about that. But you know, here in Colorado Springs, there there is no river. It's like I'm like I mentioned, all the water is being pumped in from somewhere else. There are a few wells here and there, but there's no large scale agriculture here, and it's not like in on the East Coast where you can you know have local food within 20 miles of your house. I mean, the local food in southeastern Colorado comes from the Arkansas River Valley. And, and you know, everything out, the landscapes of the West, because of the natural resources and the lack of water, just the, the, the regions we're dealing with are just so much bigger. And so, you know, in North Carolina, the food might come from the farm outside of town. Out here, it comes from Pueblo, which is 50 miles south. And that's one of the ways that we're trying to make people understand the importance of what's going on down there in Pueblo and even out farther in Rocky Ford, just along that whole river, is that any local food, that's where it's coming from at scale. If you want to feed people at scale, it's coming from there. And and I, I love what you said about the constraints, and I completely agree with that. And actually, it's funny you say that because I was just had a new podcast put out last week or earlier this week with the author David Gessner, who wrote a great uh double biography of wallace stegner and edward abbey and he we talk in there for a bit about the importance of constraints because he's written about the need to have constraints for creativity and um so i think you know whether you're writing a book or or trying to do land conservation i think um, if you're going to be creative those constraints are very important you were talking a little while ago about the fact that when you have arid or semi-arid land grassland and then you convert it into agriculture, and then that land goes dry. It doesn't just it doesn't just return to its previous nature. You have this erosion problem, and you know, sort of mini dust bowls happening. What can people do? And is this something you're looking at of land that does dry up? I mean, you're you're having to make decisions once water rights are gone. So the land that that does not stay in agriculture. Are you looking at conserving it, returning it to something like its original grassland states? Yes, that, that's exactly right. And, and I'll start out by saying, yeah, I, I, I can hear people saying, well, this land shouldn't be farmed to begin with. And in, in a way, I can see what they're saying. You know, if you think about the, the climate and the aridity of this area and how fragile grasslands are, you know, I think best case scenario, we would have left the majority of this land as, as, you know, grasslands and and we could use regenerative agriculture to, to keep the grasses healthy and that kind of thing. But that's not the world we're operating in where I, you know, the the reality is that that land, you know, over a hundred years ago was irrigated and it's been under irrigation for that long. And these communities of great people have sprung up around these farms and the farms provide us food. And so that's what we're dealing with. And it's not all going to go back to grassland. So given those kind of constraints, again, what do we do to, to make things the best case scenario? And so, you know, talking about the, the areas that, that will be dried up, particularly in this Pueblo project I mentioned, you know, there there is going to be ground dried up. Likely about 28% of the, the irrigated farmland will be dried up. And so what do you do? And the answer is 
revegetate and hold whatever authority is tasked with revegetating, hold them to task. Yeah. And there are different ways that that can be done. But, you know, revegetating grassland is not even close to going out there and throwing out a bunch of grass seeds and then hoping it grows. It's it's a very complicated process. And I think, you know, it, it, it will involve um, a lot of money and a lot of attention and likely some, you know, very progressive agricultural practices to ensure that these grasslands are brought back. But, you know, I'm friends with a lot of people um, that are deep in the holistic management world and are experts in, in revitalizing grasslands. And so I think there's definitely the, the experts are out there to make it happen, but it just can't be this willy nilly, throw a few seeds out there, see what happens. You know, there's going to be an authority in place to ensure that it's done properly. And that's one of the places where our work can come in with conservation easements is enforcing that. Right, right. Very interesting. Yeah, I've been thinking about the question of, you know, how many bison were on the North American continent before white settlers got here? And how many cows do we have now? And land that really cows or bison should be grazing is now being used to make feed for those cows who are in confined feeding operations, which are very problematic. And the whole question of like, if we could return land to its original grassland and use it for not just like conservation, but for agricultural types of conservation that involved livestock, that's a that's a whole new world. It's it's an amazing world. And in, in, in my ranch brokerage days, um, I worked with my good friend, Jim Howell, who was one of the co-founders of the Savory Institute. And I've got I got to know him through the podcast. And he's just an amazingly interesting guy and unbelievably smart, works harder than anybody I know. And he's got this group called Grasslands LLC. And, and basically what they do is manage ranches holistically. So they'll go in, they've got investors, they'll buy a ranch that has not been grazed properly. And we're talking about hundreds of thousands of acres here. And but has not been grazed properly, not in good shape. And then using his the savory grazing practices, they bring it back. And it's not just like, oh, that that field look that that meadow looks better than it did the other day. It's they're they're doing hardcore science out there and they can quantitatively measure the benefits that have come from doing their grazing practices. And this one ranch we were working on up in eastern Montana, I mean he, the biodiversity, I can't remember, but it was I mean, maybe like a 50% increase in biodiversity on this place. The grasses were healthier. They increased the carrying capacity of cows, became much, you know, went from a losing, a money losing operation to a money making operation, and even, even made money through one of the worst droughts in recorded history because they're being so mindful of their grazing practices. And, you know, we, we don't have buffalo roaming, but we do have other ruminants. And people like Jim Howell and, and all his colleagues, they've figured out a way to make ranching profitable and ecologically beneficial for these large landscapes and it's i mean it's really really inspiring to see and it's and it seems like there are a lot of young people in that world and you've talked to a lot of them on this podcast who are who are deep in that world and it's it's inspiring i love it yeah and i mean the very fact that it's doable and there's so much energy around it is just it's just really interesting i i sort of imagine a future where we'll be eating perhaps less beef, but more really healthy and properly raised beef, you know? Yeah, I agree. I think I'm no expert on that, but I feel like if you just had to boil it down to what's the one sentence solution, I think that that is it. Exactly what you said. 
We talk a lot on this program about soil and soil conservation, and as you as you know, you know very well, there are many farmers who are starting to use regenerative practices or who have been using them for a long time, like no-till and cover crops and compost and so on. And all of these things reduce the amount of water that's needed. In a place where water rights are gone or partially gone, do these kinds of practices work? Are they sufficient? Do they even make a dent on arid and semi-arid lands that you're that you're looking at in Colorado? They do, and um, that's that's one of the real bright spots, particularly in the Arkansas River Valley, is some of the innovations they're making with water efficiency. I was just down there last Friday with a Palmer board member um, named Dr. Mike Bartolo, and he works for Colorado State University in their research lab out in Rocky Ford, Colorado. And he's a PhD. He's been doing it for over 30 years. And he and his team out there it is the coolest thing to go out to their farm because they're doing all this just extremely high tech work around irrigation and figuring out either using sprinklers or using drip irrigation or just kind of trying out everything you can try out to figure out, you know, all right, how can we continue to grow crops to feed people, but use less water and make it more sustainable. And, um, you know, when you go out there, like he's got this, for example, this like it's like a bunker in the middle of this field and you go down underneath the the field and there's this huge room under there and they're weighing the, the this plot of land and they're measuring how you know, they're measuring the irrigation and and, and how um you know, evaporation affects the soil. And it's just this kind of stuff that's so far outside of what my brain is able to process. But, you know, thinking about this project near Pueblo that I mentioned, you know, there is going to be dried up land and there's going to be 30% less water there than there used to be. But if we can continue to innovate with water efficiency, then all of a sudden we can use that, that there's a potential that that 60% of the water that was there or, or 70% could actually generate the same amount of crops because we're just being more efficient with, with irrigation. And so, you know, I didn't know anything about this before I started at Palmer, but I've spent a lot of time at that research farm. And I think, it, I think as, as these iPhones and all the computer stuff, it, it, the, that technology is just growing so fast we can't keep up with it. The same thing is happening in agriculture, and it's really inspiring to see, and it's going to open up a lot of opportunities out here in the West, I think. You mentioned earlier the reality that about 80% of water in Colorado is used for agriculture, and then the remaining 20% is divided between municipalities and industry, essentially. And these numbers are remarkably steady throughout the world. Like whatever country or state or area you look at, it, it's about the same. So much of it is used for agriculture. How much of that really has the potential to be diverted away? Because, I mean, if, if municipalities, you know, we, yeah, we might be taking showers that are a little longer than we need or running the washing machine or whatever, but it's still a pretty small percentage of the overall water used. So how do those, like, are we looking at a situation where municipalities are, are going to end up using like 30, 40, or 50 percent of a state like Colorado's water? You know, I'm just, I'm really not sure on that. And, but, you know, in Colorado, you, you really do have to wonder because, like I said, I think we've got five and a half million people here now. And in the next 30 years, we're going to be taking that number up by 50, 60 percent. 
And so, you know, obviously there's going to be water efficiency technologies, both on the agricultural side and on the, the you know, municipal side. Because, you know, I, I always wonder what would happen if everybody stopped watering their lawns? Because here in Colorado Springs, like in the neighborhood where I live, there are these beautiful medians down the middle of the road that have grass in them and nobody walks in them. It's just there completely to, to be seen. Right. And there are all these beautiful old massive trees. And I just think how much water is all this taking? Last night I looked out there and they're, they're, they got the sprinklers going on that median. And so you just wonder, and they do that every day and these trees are huge and the trees shouldn't. And so I would think that on both sides of the equation, ag and municipal, there's going to be almost some forced <laughs> forced efficiency. And luckily, the technology hopefully will be there and people working on it. But there's going to come a crisis where yeah. we're going to have a, a crazy drought that's going to shut things down and it's going to force people to wake up to this. And I, I'm not some kind of doomsday or type negative kind of guy, but but that is going to happen. And they, these violent swings we're seeing in the climate, you know, last year was just unbelievably dry, forest fires everywhere this time of year. And, and today is like the first hot day we've had in Colorado, you know, all year. And um, I think, I, I you know, to be I just don't know the full answer to your question, but I think there are going to be some massive changes, both forced by the government and um, on the technological side of things. But I'm, I'm optimistic about it because I've gotten to know so many smart people on both sides of things that are kind of laying the groundwork so that we can be successful moving forward because we don't have a choice. I mean, these people are coming and these cities are going to continue to expand and we need food. So, you know, again, the constraints and let's just keep all these creative people working really hard to find solutions. The practice, of course, of buying up agricultural water rights is still going on and you are educating farmers and ranchers about what's lost when you do that and you know using conservation trust land as um as a vehicle as a mechanism to conserve water and really keep it on the land are the various you're with the Palmer Land Trust which has conserved a lot of land it's been it's been around for over 40 years um are the various land trusts around the state in touch with each other do you work together on these issues yeah, we really do, and it's it, that's one of the great things about Colorado. On a lot of on a lot of different levels, Colorado is really on the the cutting edge of conservation. Everything from the financial side, you know, we've got a transferable tax credit that allows ranchers and farmers or people who may not need a, a actual tax credit, they can sell that tax credit for cash, and so it, it you know it, it allows for conservation and. Um, allows for these ranchers and farmers and, and people who may need um, a, a liquidation type a, type event that allows them to get cash while conserving, which is great. And then everything from that to the innovation that we're doing here and some of our other fellow land trusts are doing in other parts of the state. And there's a group that um, is called Keep It Colorado, and it's basically the umbrella organization of all the Colorado land trusts. It used to be called the Colorado Coalition of Land Trust, and just this year they – we kind of revamped it, rehired a new executive director, and renamed it uh, Keep It Colorado. And it's everything from a, a, a collective voice for lobbying, both in the state and on federal level, which I've recently been doing some of and is very interesting. Um, and then it's it's also a way for us to get together and share ideas and talk about what's working and what's not. And you know, the the what I've seen just in my short time, ten years of 
working in conservation is that the old model of just doing conservation easements, that's petering out. And it, a lot of land trust, uh, if any land trust is solely focused only on conservation easements and nothing else, I think it could be a, that can be a hard road. And so the, you know, just from a business standpoint, we need to be innovative and we also need to be innovative for our goal of, you know, protecting these natural resources. And so there, there are a ton of great organizations. The, the Colorado Cattlemen's Agricultural Land Trust, I've, I've worked with them for a long time and they're, they're wonderful. They do great work. The Nature Conservancy is doing a lot of great work and they're, you know, they're massive, they're global, but the, in Southeastern Colorado, the combination of the Nature Conservancy, the Cattlemen's Land Trust working with ranchers and then us working with farmers is, it's really a, a all-star team. If you take me out of it, <laughs> it's a, you know, everybody oh, no. is, is this, is this real all-star team of, of people that are doing innovative work and that really, really get it and are looking forward versus doing things the way they've always been done. So again, I'm just, I'm just lucky to be a part of any of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Before we go, let's talk about your podcast, Mountain and Prairie. How did you start it? What's it about? Yeah, I would have never in my wildest dreams imagined I'd have anything to do with a podcast, but it's it's been just a wonderful experience. Um, when I was selling ranches, I w- kind of occupied this this strange space, right? It seemed strange to me where I was had one foot in the agricultural world. I do a lot of endurance sports. Um, actually, I, I should say I did because I'm taking a little break because I've got a two very, very young little girls. So I need to, something needs to go on the back burner, but I was kind of in this world of agriculture, endurance sports, mountain sports adventure. I'm a, I'm a voracious reader. And so I kind of in that world and all these worlds that in some ways may not seem all that connected, but I saw that there was this overlap in this love of conservation, love of open space, love of learning. And, you know, for example, I'd be dealing with, a a crusty old, you know, fifth generation rancher out in the middle of nowhere one day and then talking to a professional athlete the next day. And and you wouldn't think that those two would have that much in common, but they did mostly based around a love of, of the West and of open spaces. And so I thought, man, I meet all these cool people. Why not, uh, why not try to do a podcast? I bet people would think it was interesting. And so I just started doing it. I just went to, <laughs> I went to Best Buy and bought the cheapest microphone they had, plugged <laughs> it in and, and started doing it. And, um, I've been doing it now for about three years and it's, it's just been amazing. The, the, um, feedback I've gotten and it's opened up some, some cool opportunities. I got invited to the Aspen Institute to interview one of my favorite authors, Hampton Sides. Oh and, yeah. He's, uh, he's um, in Santa Fe and he lives right here. Yeah, he sure does. He yeah, and he's man, he he's hilarious and he's cool and he's obviously one of the the best narrative historians there is and you know, gotten to know like guys like Dan Flores and and Sarah Dant who who I mentioned earlier and um different different athletes and um it's it's really been a a great experience and people have responded to it which I I never really expected. So I'm uh, I'm just again glad to be along for the ride. <laughs> Well, Ed Robinson, it's really great to talk to you. And if people want to find out more about your work, they can go to mountainandprairie.com. And they can also look up the work of the Palmer Land Trust in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Thank you so much for being with us here on Down to Earth. Yeah, well, thank you for your interest in what we're doing. I really, really appreciate it. 
This program is produced in collaboration with the Kivira Coalition, a non-for-profit educational organization and community network of ranchers, farmers, conservationists, scientists, educators, and many others dedicated to the resilience of arid working lands. Their work aims to shift current practices of agriculture and land stewardship to those that produce good food, support meaningful livelihoods in rural places, sustain biodiversity, and remedy the impacts of climate change. To learn more about Kivira and how you can support their work, visit kiviracoalition.org, Q-U-I-V-I-R-A, coalition.org. You've been listening to Down to Earth, a production of the Kivira Coalition and the Radio Cafe. I'm your host, Mary Charlotte Dumondi. If you like this program, please share it with your network. And we'd love your feedback. Go to downtoearth.media, where you can contact us and you can sign up for the mailing list. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're producing this show bi-weekly and would love your comments and ideas. So once again, downtoearth.media. And check out the Kivira Coalition, kiviracoalition.org. That's Q-U-I-V-I-R-A. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.